Well, it's always a joy to come together to worship. Thank you, Owen, for leading us, and uh, Liesel and Selena for helping us all to sing together. Now we come to the exposition of God's Word from Romans chapter 1. If you would turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. And what we do here, if you're visiting for the first time, we do expository preaching where a text is read, a text is opened up, explained, and then applied. And with the Spirit's work in the believer's heart, the Bible is believed. And if it commands us to put something into practice, we put that into practice, Lord willing. But ultimately, we are here to glorify God, to worship Him together. And we want to hear a word from the Lord from His inerrant Bible from his inerrant scriptures. So I want to bring a message to you today from Romans chapter 1. We've been working our way through Romans 1. We've been hearing from the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. And starting in verse 18, he's been giving us the bad news about humanity. The bad news is that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. We're all born in sin. We continue in sin. We love sin until... The Lord Jesus saves us until we're born again, redeemed, and put in Christ. But Paul's been telling us why the gospel is so important and why it needs to go out to the whole world. And so today my message is entitled, Abandon to a Depraved Mind. The reason the gospel needs to go out, the reason people need to hear the good news of the righteousness of God revealed in Christ is because the world has been abandoned to a depraved mind. Let me read the whole passage to you so you get the flow. This is Paul's argument. When Paul writes his letters, he's making a logical argument. He's going from step to step to step and pointing us in the direction that we need to go along with him to understand what he's getting at. So starting in verse 18, this is his main point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So he starts off talking about the wrath of God here. Then he's going to tell us why. Then he'll tell us how. So the why picks up in verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So then Paul goes into how this wrath of God is revealed right now and all the way in the past and will be until he brings an end to it all. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Today's passage, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the bad news about mankind. 
that we are all in sin until we're saved by Christ. And it's not a message the world likes to hear, especially when it comes straight from Scripture. That can anger people. That can upset people. There's an interesting story from back in 2017. London commuters wrenched open the doors of a packed rush hour train Monday morning, forcing the train to stop and the power of the tracks to be cut. Witnesses described the scene as panicked and commotion. The reason? A fellow passenger was reading the Bible aloud. One witness said, I specifically heard him say things about homosexuality and sex before marriage being sins and how we had to repent for our sins. The Lord gave his son for our sins, etc. One passenger told the Richmond and Twickenham Times. He says, I sort of zoned out a little after that as I had no interest in listening to him. Others weren't able to zone out. They started to panic and push. Some commuters became scared when the man also began saying, death is not the end, a writer told the BBC. So again, just the Bible being read out loud about sinful practices scared these Londoners. And if they were uncomfortable, if they were afraid of a scripture reading out loud, a passage like we just read today really hits all of mankind with all the sins. Last week we looked at the sin of homosexuality and, and how God is giving over mankind to that. But now we look at a long list of sinful practices. And even if we personally can't identify with the sin he's already mentioned, we certainly can identify with this long list that he gives today. Well, why are people so upset? Why does the world get angry when sin is mentioned? When the Bible is read? Because it describes them perfect. No one wants to be called out perfectly on the things they're doing wrong. And yet that is what the Bible does. Paul's been telling us that the wrath of God is being revealed right now. It's been revealed in the past. It's being revealed right now. It will continue to be revealed. This wrath comes upon mankind for one reason. We've denied God. Mankind has denied God the glory that's due him. Even though God makes it evident to everybody, even the person in the jungle who's never read the Bible, who's never heard of Jesus, knows there's a creator, God, Paul says, because God made it evident. He made himself known through creation. And he made sure they understood, every person understands, that there is a God that should be worshipped, that should be glorified. And yet, even though they know that, They've turned away from God and worshipped idols. Sometimes themselves today, they worship themselves, they worship other people, they worship money, success. In ancient times, it was statues. Some people still worship statues today. And Paul says now, not only did God give them over to sexual impurity, which we looked at last week, and he gave us the depth that people are willing to go, even to deny the natural function of, that God created in their bodies and with their body parts. The world is willing to go to such an extent, they're also, today he's going to say, willing to degrade themselves in all kinds of different ways. Why is this happening? Because God has given them over. He is judging the world right now. Yes, he will judge a final judgment, but don't think all this sin right now is going on unnoticed from our sovereign creator. He knows everything. He sees everything. And he is judging even now those who continue in sin. So in today's passage, 28 through 31, I want us to see God's abandonment wrath, because that's really God's wrath now. He's abandoned humanity to their sin. God's abandonment wrath upon the world in two steps. And when you hear God's abandonment wrath, don't take it as he doesn't care. He sent his son. There is a gospel being presented. And he made it evident in creation that he exists. That's why he says all mankind is without excuse. God is a fair and just judge. And because people have denied him, he's given them exactly what they wanted as punishment. He's given them over to their sin. So first of all, let's look at this. A depraved mind. A depraved mind in verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Look closely what the verse is saying. Why is the wrath of God being revealed? Well, he summarizes all that he's already said by just saying they didn't acknowledge God any longer. 
They had a knowledge of God. They knew something about him. The Greek word here isn't just a basic knowledge either. They knew quite a bit about God. The pagan is, Paul, is who Paul's talking about. Not the Jew. That's coming up in chapter 2. The pagan knows enough about God. They know something about him. And yet, they did not see fit to acknowledge him any longer. They should have thanked him. They should have glorified him just for having food to eat, just for having a family and shelter and water to drink. And yet, they denied him. And not only denied him, but the word Paul uses here is they did not see fit any longer to do so. This, this verb, see fit, is a word originally used for testing the quality of silver coins. So a person would look at the coin and see if there's any impurities in this newly minted silver coin. If it had impurities, it wasn't made well, or the silver quality was low, they would see it in the coin and they would toss it in the junk pile. Paul's saying that's what people do with God. Literally, he's saying mankind put God to the test and did not approve of God. Mankind thought about God, all that they know about God, and said, I don't approve of Him. I don't like this idea of God. They examined God according to their own standards and rejected Him. They said, God, you don't fit my idea of what a God should be. And we hear this today. You'll teach them about God from Scripture, and they'll say, that's not the God I worship. The God I worship would never send people to hell. The God I worship would never say such things. And to that, you have to say, well, you're not worshiping the God that reveals himself in the Bible, in Scripture. Paul says they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. One commentator, Leon Moore, says they refused to have God in their knowledge. They thrust him out of their circle of acquaintance. Their ignorance of God was not due to a lack of opportunity to know him, but to their deliberate refusal. They preferred other things to the knowledge of God. They wanted something else that they could manipulate, that they could manage. Everyone likes a God of their own making because then he gives us exactly what we want. We don't have to live by his standards. He has to live by our standards. Well, Paul says, as a result of this, God gave them over. A terrifying phrase here. We looked at this last week, but just in review, he's bringing it up again because he says God has given them over to their sins. He's continuing to explain how the wrath of God is being shown. How does the wrath of God become revealed upon all mankind? Well, there's sexual impurity. That's category one. He's already discussed that. Now he says, through a depraved mind. That's category two. God is constantly giving sinners over to those two categories of sin because they did not see fit to acknowledge God. He gave them over. In Greek, it means to turn someone over to the authorities. To give up a person for punishment. It's a technical term. The police would arrest somebody, bring them to the judge, so they would give a person over to the judge. The judge would judge them in the court, and then the judge would give them over to be punished. Often put in prison today, or killed in past times. Well, in the Old Testament, this exact same idea is used to describe when Israel is delivered over to the nations to be judged. When Israel is going to be judged for their sins, it says that God gave them over to these other nations who would come and take them and punish them. In other words, God is punishing when He gives over. He's bringing His retribution upon sinners. The punishment has already begun in mankind's heart and life and actions. Giving over. Business, all of these things are affected By giving over. So Paul shows us here that God is a just, just judge. You need to know that he's fair. He's just. He does everything according to his holy and righteous standard. You want criminals to be punished. And these are criminals who have gone against God. The only reason people really have a problem with God judging is because they know that they're going to be judged by him. And we don't like to put ourselves in that position. We don't like to see ourselves as God sees us. 
And until we come to Christ, we will indeed be judged by the Lord. Well, this type of judgment is a handing over somebody to punishment. So what's the punishment? Well, before, Paul told us, when it comes to sexual impurity, that's the punishment. He hands people over to their lust, the lust of their heart to impurity. Now he gives us the other category, to a depraved mind. To a depraved mind. In Scripture, the mind is the sum total of your thinking, of your mental and moral. So he's not just talking about their ability to make good grades, their ability to do algebra. He's talking about their whole mental and moral state. And really the, the moral state. The ability to reason right from wrong. The ability to think in accordance with what God has said is right. It's an attitude. The mind in Scripture is more about an attitude or a way of thinking. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 4.23, talking about the sanctification of the believer, that believers are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. God has changed our mind as Christians. And he says, as we grow in Christ, our mind is to be renewed to be made more and more like Christ. Because we still carry some of that junk, some of that fleshly way of thinking, even as Christians. But the unbeliever, he has no renewal process. So if his mind is depraved and continuing to be depraved, when God says he gives them over, that means things are going to get worse and worse and worse. We're not talking again here about comprehension of science or math. We're talking about morality primarily. Talk about the downgrade here that we see in the world. How much have you seen in your lifetime? With the way people think. The sins that come out of the mind. And the list of the 21 that we're about to see here in the text. How much of that have you seen in your life? And it seems to be picking up pace in our world. Things are more flagrant. Things are more in your face. Things are more offensive than they've ever been. And Paul says that's because God has given them over to a depraved mind. Depraved mind. Well, that can't be too bad, right? Well, look at this word in the NASB. It's translated depraved, adokamos in Greek. It means not being in accordance with what is right, appropriate, or fitting. The idea is it's worthless. In fact, it's a play on words to what people said about God. They said he's not fit and he should be thrown away because he's worthless. Well, Paul now takes the noun form of that verb for not see fit and he says, God gave them over to unfit minds. That's how the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. So we can see the wordplay. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind. They looked at all the knowledge that they had about God, and they thought, you know, He doesn't seem fit to be my God. And God said, okay, now you have an unfit mind as a punishment for rejecting God. The Lord, for rejecting the Creator. This word is often associated with conscience as well. The conscience is the ability to tell right from wrong. So when someone has a depraved mind, they're unable to think clearly. Have you ever tried to reason with an unbeliever? Or maybe when you were an unbeliever, people were trying to reason with you. And you couldn't agree with them. You couldn't follow their line of thought. You didn't want to. You didn't even want to hear it. Because your mind was unfit. It was depraved. It was, in a sense, worthless when it comes to God's standard. People are unable to think clearly about what God wants them to do. Because they're consumed by their sinful thoughts. How many hours and hours are consumed every year? We could even say every day just from sinful thoughts. How much good could be done in the place of all the sinful thinking that goes on in people's minds. How many prayers could a believer pray in the place of sinful thoughts that go on in the mind? Well, for the unbeliever, they spend a lot of time thinking sinful thoughts, planning their sins, and eventually seeking to work them out in their life. Paul says to Titus in Titus 1, 15, he says, To the pure all things are pure. 
But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their consciences are defiled. You can't think purely as an unbeliever. Yeah, you can try to match up with the social standard of the day. What your neighbors think is right. What the world thinks is right. But that's one of the problems, isn't it? The world's idea of right and wrong is always changing. you got to try to keep up. What was right a year ago is now considered wrong in many circles. And you just can't keep up with the ever-changing standard. But God's standard is always the same. Perfect righteousness and holiness. He reveals that in Scripture. But someone who has a depraved mind doesn't want to do what the Bible says. Yeah, they want to do the easy things, but not the hard things. Like, be holy like I am holy. They can't even do that. They can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Commentator Douglas Moo says, People who have refused to acknowledge God end up with minds that are disqualified. That's another way we could translate this word depraved, disqualified, from being able to understand and acknowledge the will of God. They are fundamentally unable to think and decide correctly about God and His will. This is the explanation, he says, for the failure of people to comprehend, let alone practice biblical ethical principles. Why can't the world understand what is right and wrong? Here's the answer. A depraved mind. He goes on to say, only the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and renewing the mind can overcome this deep-seated blindness and perversity. 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't even accept them. He can't accept them. He doesn't want to accept them. He adds another characteristic here of the natural man. And he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually appraised. He doesn't like what he hears and rejects it. And he can't even understand it. It doesn't make sense to him. The spiritual things of God don't make sense to the unbeliever. That's what Paul is saying with the depraved mind. So God gave them over to a depraved mind. What's the result of that? To do those things which are not proper, he says. It's not just what's in the mind. Now that's going to start to come out in their life. You can't live in a way that you have sinful thoughts all the time as an unbeliever and not act upon them. And so he says the result is to do those things which are not proper. Everybody in the ancient world understood that there were things you shouldn't do. There were things that were improper. Even the philosophers used this exact phrase. They taught their students not to do the things which are improper. And so when he uses this, any educated person in the ancient world would have understood what he's talking about. Things that are not proper to do in society. They're inappropriate. They're contrary to the light of reason that God gives every person. The list that he's about to give, everyone understands that those things are not right. They're not proper. They're not fitting for relationships in the world. I like what one old commentator said. He said, it's like an abandoned old building. The home of bats and snakes left to do those things which are not proper. Talking about the mind here. Like the nightclubs of modern cities. The dives and dens of the underworld without God. And in the darkness of unrestrained animal impulses. God said, you reject me. You don't want me in your life. Now that's your punishment. The first punishment that mankind gets for their sin is to let them go into their own sin. God hands them over to the prison. And the prison is the depraved mind. That's what scripture says. Sometimes people don't want to think about God's judgment. They don't want to think about God's wrath. But Paul says it's important. You need to understand it. He's going to spend time on it in chapter 1. He's going to spend time on it in chapter 2. Why would he do that? Why would he spend so much time talking about the sinful life of unbelievers? Because God's righteousness has been revealed in Christ to the whole world. Christ has come. Why is that important? Because it's a dark place. The world is a dark place. And Christ has the light And so Paul's saying, look, you can't even understand your own salvation until you realize where you've come from. And you won't even care to take it to other people until you realize where they're at. And this is where they're at. In a depraved mind. 
Well, secondly, let's look at a depraved life. A depraved life. You can't spend time in a depraved mindset, thinking about sinful things, turning away from God without that coming out in your life. That's going to affect your life. That's going to affect the way you live. And he says, this characterizes an unbeliever's life. 29 through 31, he's going to give a list. 21 different non-sexual sinful practices. He's already covered the sexual sin. That's a huge one, so he covered it first. And now he's going into the rest of them. And sometimes people will say, all Christians talk about sexual sin. All Christians talk about is homosexuality. No, we talk about them all. It's just people are most offended, it seems like right now, over the homosexual issue. But these other ones are just as sinful. People go to hell for all of these as well. A depraved life. 21 different non-sexual sinful practices that characterize the unbelieving pagan life. This is a list of ungodly acts. And it shows what happens when God gives people over to their sinful thoughts, their sinful minds. They end up straying from the truth. They run off into wickedness. As parents, when we raise up our children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord, we don't want to see them run off into sin. We'll let them make a few mistakes to learn from. But you never want to see, as a believing parent, you never want to see your child run off into sin. You want to do all that you can to prevent that. You want to raise them up. You want to teach them the word. You want to pray for them. Well, God, as our Heavenly Father, is watching over His creation. And He desires all to worship Him. But you know what people do? They run off into their own sin. And God, knowing what is good and just and right, gives them over to that. And look at this list of sins. Look at this judgment. And it's not just that every person commits some of these. But often, if we think of our unsaved life that we live before we receive Christ as Savior, usually we can pick out two, three, four, five or more of these sinful practices that we ourselves were committing. Sometimes there are people who profess to be Christians and practice these sins on a regular basis. These characterize the unbelieving world. All 21 of these sins, non-sexual sins, are in mankind today and they destroy relationships. That's what they all have in common. All 21 basically destroy relationships. There's one that mentions our relationship with God, God God-haters. But the rest talk about our relationship with others in this world. Now he generally lists them in three groups. We're going to go through those three groups. But listen as this list is explained. Think about the unbelievers that you know. Think about your own heart, your own life. Think about people that say they're Christians, but certainly live according to these sins here. First of all, in verse 29, he gives a general description of mankind's sin. The first four that he lists are about a general description of mankind's sin. He says, being filled with. So you get the idea here that the ones he's about to list, the next four are connected here. Being filled up to the brim with these sinful actions. They're filled up with them in their life. They're controlled by them, in other words. The unbeliever has no ultimate control. They think they do, but they're actually being controlled by the lusts of their heart. They're being controlled by the depraved mind. They're being controlled by sin. They're slaves. To sin. And so Paul says they're being filled with all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. Not just a little bit, but all unrighteousness. And we've already looked at unrighteousness back in verse 18. It was mentioned twice. It means injustice, immorality, evil deeds. An active assault against God's moral order. It's someone who says, I know what's right and I'm not going to do it. I'm going against that, and I'm doing what I want. He's not even talking about particulars yet. He's just saying unrighteousness in general characterize the unbelieving world. William Barclay describes this as the man who robs both man and God of their rights. He has so erected an altar to himself in the center of things that he worships himself to the exclusion of God and man. 
Someone who doesn't care about God, who does what they want, they set their own standards, and they're living a life of unrighteousness. We're just getting started here. That's already enough to send a person to hell forever. He continues, all wickedness, being filled with all wickedness. Wickedness is a state or condition of a lack of moral or social values. You could translate it as baseness, maliciousness, sinfulness. This word is often used to describe Satan in the Bible. Just wickedness. Because Satan's goal is to deliberately attack and try to destroy God's creation. He wants to destroy mankind in particular. And he loves nothing better than to see relationships break apart and be dissolved. That's because of wickedness. And then he lists greed. Greed is the state of desiring to have more than one's due. It could be money. Often we think of money. But it could be anything. It could be food, sex, things, possessions. You could translate this insatiableness, avarice, covetousness, lust. It's a strong desire to have something that is much more than you need. And usually that person wants it all the time. Peter says in 2 Peter 2 that this describes false teachers. False teachers do what they do because of greed. And in Colossians 3, he says this is idolatry. It's idolatry to want something that much that you don't need. Sometimes we joke about the things that we love. We love good food. We might love good books. When it really comes down to it, greed is an insatiable desire. I like my books. I like my home. I even like my old Toyota pickup. But if all that disappeared tomorrow, I go on because I have the Lord. The unbeliever doesn't have the Lord. They have things. They have appetites. They have insatiableness. They have greed because they're worshiping something else. He also says they're being filled with evil. There's a lot of Greek and Hebrew words in the Bible that get translated just as evil in English. This one means a mean, spirited, or vicious attitude. Some translations say malice here. I think the ESV has malice. But that's better to say for a word that's coming up later in the list. This evil here is an outward act of harm. Starts in the heart, though. Evil. An evil heart. So that's the first four. There's then five that come up next. And the five that come up next all are tied to envy. So the next five we could say are envy and its consequences. Envy and its consequences. He, again, starts off with another group by saying they're full of. Full of what? Full of these next five sins. In other words, a degree of completedness. This shows you how their life is. It characterizes them. And he starts off with envy. Envy. Envy is a huge problem in humanity. It's a huge problem in Christianity. It means a state of ill will towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage. How many movements that are happening out there? The woke movement. Socialism, communism, at the root comes down to envy. Some real or presumed advantage that someone else has, and you have an ill will towards that person or that group of people. The ancient Greek writer Xenophon says this word speaks of being envious. Those who are annoyed only at their friends' successes. They see their friends doing well, and they're annoyed at that. They're envious. They want that kind of fame, that kind of fortune, that kind of attention. And when envious fill the heart, it leads to the next one, murder. Murder. Murder means to simply deprive a person of life by illegal, intentional killing. Scripture allows for a life to be taken in just war, in capital punishment, and in self-defense. Everything outside of those is against God's will. And even those often are done by governments, not personal people like just war and capital punishment. But murder is when envy rises up in a person's heart and it results in taking someone's life. Why do all these murders happen in America, around the world every day? It's because of envy. People are angry at something they don't have. So it results in murder. Even Pontius Pilate knew that's why the chief priests were handing over Jesus. He says the chief priests had done it 
because of envy. They didn't like the attention that Jesus was getting. They wanted him dead. Mark 15.10 Envy also leads to strife. Strife is the next one. Strife is conflict resulting from rivalry or discord. Just fighting. Upsetting the peace. We're seeing that in families more and more right now. Families fall apart every day. Divorces happen over nothing it seems like. And children are rebelling and whole families are in strife. You can't even have a get-together at the holidays or any other time without strife. And then we see this with countries where one country invades another country and tries to take over. Why? Because of envy. Envy leads to strife. Also to deceit. Envy leads to deceit. Deceit is to deceive by using trickery or falsehood. You should be feeling the weight of the sin that's upon the world and even creeps into the church with this list that we're seeing here. Deceit originally was used as a word for baiting for fish. It refers to any deliberate attempt to mislead someone for your advantage, to deceive someone so that you can gain an advantage because you're envious. Morris says there's nothing straightforward about sin and sinners do not hesitate to deceive one another if their purposes can be advanced. A person who continues to deceive is an unbelieving pagan. If someone is constantly deceiving you and they say they're a Christian, Paul says that's a characteristic of an unbeliever's lifestyle. Just as all of these are. The last one of this group, malice. Or the ESV says maliciousness. An evil disposition leading one to habitually engage in hurtful acts. Someone who's always trying to hurt others. Those who are full of malice make threats. They make threats. Maybe they're just threats and sometimes they get actualized into physical abuse. This is exactly the opposite from biblical love. From the love that Christ shows His people. From the love that God calls us to in 1 Corinthians 13. Malice is the opposite of that. Biblical love hopes all things. Malice seeks to harm. Biblical love trusts. Unless there is evidence to the contrary, they trust in what a person says. Malice never trusts, is always seeking to disrupt and harm. Now we come to the last grouping here. There's 12 more left. If you're not sad for all humanity and even feeling a bit pinched, then maybe this last 12 will grab you and wake you up. Lifestyles of the evil and infamous. The last 12 in the list. Lifestyles of the evil and infamous. You know, we used to, some of us older folks used to watch Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. And it was just, it really was covetous. Just look at how famous these wealthy people, look at their homes, look at their boats, their yachts, their lake house, their house in the mountains. And we would salivate over that. And even as a kid, I remember thinking, I'm going to have all of that someday. You know, I'm going to have all of that someday. Well, that was, of course, covetousness. But this list here is not the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but the evil and infamous. Twelve categories of sinful lifestyles. So he's no longer talking about what people are full of, or what they're consumed with, but now specifically how they live it out in their life. They are gossips, he says. We're now at the end of verse 29. They are gossips. There are many words in the Bible for gossip. We translate them all the same in English as gossip. But there's various words. This one sounds like what it means. Psithuristus. It sounds like whispering. You say it really fast. This is a person who is whispering, a rumor monger, a talebearer. And it's done in secret. It's done in secret. The goal is not so the person hears what you've said about them. The goal is just to stir up. To the one who secretly spreads stories or bad news about others. Since she speaks in secret, the person that she speaks against cannot defend himself since he doesn't even know about that falsehood being spread. Secret rumors, gossip, bad news, spreading it around behind closed doors. John Calvin says, by secret accusations, their gossip breaks off the friendships of good men. He says it inflames their minds with anger. It defames the innocent and sows discord. 
This goes against what the Bible teaches. Clearly, all throughout Scripture, it says that we ought not to be gossips. Proverbs eleven thirteen: He who does, he who goes about as a talebearer, reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy conceals a matter. Don't spread gossip. Don't listen to it, and don't spread it, because Paul says that's an unbeliever if you practice that as a consistent lifestyle. The sin characterizes the unbelieving pagan world. Why are Christians gossiping? Why are Christians gossiping when it characterizes an unbeliever? I think it's become one of the respectable sins that Jerry Bridges lists in his book. One that we just put up with. One that we get used to. One that we participate in. We can't be gossipers. I mean, we're Christians, right? We would never fall back into any of the sins on this list, would we? Well, it gets worse with the next one, verse 30, slanderers. Slander carries gossip one step further. Since gossip is unleashed in secret, but the slander here is done openly. The Greek word literally means to speak against someone, to defame them. So the gossiper says things behind closed doors. They really don't want you to hear what they said about you. The slanderer doesn't care if you hear it. They don't even care if they say it in your presence. But even if they say it to someone else... It doesn't matter to them that it comes back to you and affects you. The gossiper speaks in secret. The slander here is someone who makes open insults against others. They simply don't care if you hear it or not. The intent is to hurt your reputation. And this characterizes the unbelieving world. Slander is everywhere. They even try to enact laws against slander and print. But it becomes very difficult even to stop that. Next, haters of God. Notice right after slanders is haters of God. And then we're going to look at insolent after that. He's reminding us all of these people are haters of God. They hate God. They knew something about God. They not only rejected him, but they hate him. Why? Because God continues to call us to holiness. Believers with the Spirit can grow and grow in that. Unbelievers can't. And instead of turning like they should to the Lord, they turn away and become haters of God. James Montgomery Boyce says, Not many people today would admit that they hate God, choosing rather to think of themselves as rather tolerant of Him. But nowhere do they show their hatred more than in their condescending attitudes. Scratch beneath the surface. Allow something to come into their lives that they consider unwarranted or unfair. And their hatred of God immediately boils over. How could God let this happen to me? They demand. If they could, they would strangle him. That's the world. How could God do this? There must not be a God. Next, he says insolent. Insolent. They're insolent. This is a violent person. An insolent person. Insolent in English means showing a rude or arrogant lack of respect. They're violent with their words. They don't show any respect to authority. They have a lofty sense of superiority. And they're cruel and insulting to others. Cruel and insulting. They think everyone is beneath them. They insult everyone else because they're superior and everyone else is inferior. Then he lists arrogance. I mean, this is quite the list. Even as the believer reads through this list, it just feels weighty, arrogant. This means haughty, proud. An ancient writer, Theophrastus, says this vice means a certain contempt for everyone except oneself. You just have contempt for everyone else. Puffed up with a high opinion. Then he goes on. These are all connected, boastful. This is a boaster, a braggart. The word originally meant a wonderer, somebody who wandered around selling their merchants or their merchandise. Merchants who would wander around selling their merchandise and they would boast loudly of how great their product is. Come by this special liquid, it'll heal all that ails you. So they were boasting and it became used for anybody who bragged about their accomplishments, whether they were real accomplishments or an exaggeration for something they had never really done. Somebody who boasts. And if that's not enough, Paul says they're inventors of evil. They just think up new ways to sin. The old ways are not enough. I recently heard about a, a man who was so upset at his ex-wife that he got a bulldozer and started bulldozing her house. Just all the time there are new ways to sin that are being invented by people. Sure, it, it comes in the same main categories of sin, but 
new ways to act it out. I heard last year that there was a woman in Walmart in the checkout line. And she turns to the woman beside her and says, how much to buy your little child? You find all kinds of evil being flagrantly shown on the streets in some of these gay pride parades. San Francisco. You saw in past years the the riots in all these cities. People are always inventing new ways to do evil. Disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. You hear that, children? Teenagers? A regular, consistent lifestyle of disobedience means that that person is an unbeliever. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying a consistent lifestyle of that describes an unbeliever. Now, there's four more left. And these last four really speak of being without something. You should have these things, but the unbelieving world is without them. In Greek, uh, the, the letter alpha comes in front, the alpha privative. So we, see, we, we say somebody is a theist if they believe in God, and they're an atheist. A is in front of the word theist to mean they don't believe in God, even though we know everybody believes in God, because that's what Paul says in Romans 1. So look at how these are described without understanding. They're void of understanding, not meaning, again, that they can't intellectually think, but they're senseless, they're foolish, implies a a lack of high morality. To cut themselves off from God makes them stupid when it comes to doing the right thing. They're wicked in how they go about life. They're also without trust. It says untrustworthy. Some translations might say faithless. They renege on their word. They don't keep their agreements, their pledges, their covenants. They make a promise to someone and they don't keep it. And that's a regular pattern in their life. They don't keep their word. They're unloving. And this is really talking about the love that's expressed in a family. They're they're without love when it comes to family or close associates. This shows how deeply corrupt society has gotten when you have such a disruption of the family or your closest friends. Just because somebody is willing to live their sinful life and disrupt the family. They're willing to stab their best friends in the back and they have no qualms about it. It doesn't even bother them. And then the last one, unmerciful. They have a lack of mercy towards those who are suffering. I mean, this is the worst of the list. You know someone's suffering, you see them suffering, and you have no compassion for them. That is how the world thinks. The only time they show anything close to compassion is if others are watching. Let's get the cameras out, take some pictures, video this so I can put it online. But when no one's watching... There's no compassion. Again, these these sins don't necessarily describe every single person. But as a group, they describe the world. And this one's awful, unmerciful. They would just as well as kick a person who's down than help them up. This is when they see others piling on. They jump right in and pile on as well. Always quick to join in. This is why one commentator said it's significant that in an epistle... The epistle to Romans here, he's going to stress God's mercy throughout the whole book. The list of these vices should be rounded off with merciless. It's the very depth of evil. God is so merciful, even to unbelievers, and letting them live and giving them all that they need in life. And yet, people are unmerciful. What a sad state the world is in. What a sad state we were in before Christ saved us. In conclusion, I just want to give you four applications. What do we do with this list? What do we do with this list as believers? Well, we need to realize and believe, because that's what it says, that this is why God's wrath of abandonment is upon the unbelieving world. We need to believe that. We don't need to get into philosophical debates about why God is judging the people who's never heard the gospel. Why is he judging that person? Well, it says right in the text. We just need to believe that and put that into practice when we evangelize. Second application I would suggest is as Christians, we must not be characterized by these sins. We can't be. We can't be. Woe to any believer who practices these sins. As a true believer, you cannot 
live your life like this. And that leads me to the third application. If you are consistently practicing any of, any of these, of the 21, if you live a life that someone else could look and say, that's your life? Or you yourself know that fits your life? Then you're not born again. Paul makes this clear in Galatians. Go to Galatians 5. He's talking to believers here. And he says, in Galatians 5.19, he gives this list. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. That's what he ended in verse 18 saying. Now in 19, he says, now the deeds of the flesh. He will talk about fruit of the Spirit by the time you're done with this paragraph. But now he's talking about the deeds of the flesh. They're evident. You can see them. They are immorality, impurity, talking about the sexual sins here, sensuality. Then there's idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these. Very similar list. Even though the words aren't exact, he's still hitting all the main targets here. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's warning them. You can't live like that. And if you do, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You're not saved. You need to truly turn to Christ and be saved. And that's the fourth application I'll give you. Unbelievers need the gospel. Why? So you can mark another mark for converting somebody? No. Because they're going to hell and they're already being punished for their sin. And you were too before you heard the gospel. You've got to have that mercy that the unbeliever doesn't have. That end of the list. You've got to be merciful enough that you want to tell them the truth. Yes, people will get mad. A lot of people will get mad when you just point out some of these sins. But at the same time, you've got to start with the bad news. You can tell them the good news. The bad news is we're sinners and we need a Savior. And so let's take that gospel to our children and tell them, look, you're sin. You're born in sin. You're a sinner. You need the gospel. Let me tell you about Christ. Let's take it to our neighbors. Let's take it to our co-workers. Let's talk about it in church a lot, not just in the sermons. You know, in home group, we're going through these questions that discuss the sermons. The gospel's always being discussed. We're always talking about it. In Bible studies, we need to refer to it. Let's remember that Christ can save people from these sins. He does it all the time. And let's have compassion for those who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for the text. It's not always the feel-good type of text that we want to hear, but it is what we need. You know what we need, and we need to remember where we came from. And where the world still is. Help us as Christians today to care enough to tell them the truth. To speak the truth in love. And Lord, if there's anyone here that's not saved and they hear the list of sins. And they know, they know in their heart of hearts that they're not saved. Lord, regenerate them today. Renew them today. Give them the power to believe. And I pray that they would trust in the only one who can save us from the judgment, from the wrath that you're pouring out. We pray that your name would be glorified through all of this. Amen.